is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. In this episode, we interview Dr. Rich Ellings about what he believes are the critical issues, key actors, and trends facing the Indo-Pacific in 2019. Let me briefly introduce Rich. His more extensive bio is linked in the show notes of this podcast. Dr. Rich Ellings is the co-founder and president of NBR. He's an affiliate professor of international studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. He also serves as the executive director for the Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property. And he was a former Senate hand covering foreign affairs and defense issues. He served as a consultant to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Department of State, Department of Energy, and other U.S. government offices and agencies. And he's testified before Congress on U.S.-Asia policy. In 2018, the Indo-Pacific was the front for some of the key challenges and opportunities for the United States. We saw increased tensions between the United States and China. We saw a flurry of denuclearization talks with North Korea. We've seen the continued dynamism in ASEAN, to name a few trends. As we look ahead to 2019, we interview Rich. He talks about the shifting balance of power since the days he started studying Asia, the biggest opportunities and challenges before us in the Indo-Pacific, including China, Russia, working with our partners and allies. He walks us through the fundamentals that the U.S. policymakers have to get right in order to address these challenges. And he explains why now is the right time to study international relations. We hope you enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Welcome to the show, Rich. Nice to be here, Dan. So, Rich, you're the president of the National Bureau of Asian Research. You co-founded the institution in 1989. You've worked in the Senate. You've taught as a professor on Asia. But let's start at the beginning. What drew you to Asia in the first place? Now, you shared with me that you traveled to the region when you were 19. Were there other influences that helped develop your interest in Asia? Well, first of all, let me say that I haven't had a promotion in 30 years. <laughs> and so uh, so it's great still to be head of NBR. Uh, it's been a lot of, lot of sideways. Uh, only kidding there. The, uh, I had an interesting a set of reasons why I got interested in Asia. It simply derived naturally from the way I was raised. My dad was a fighter pilot in World War II in the, in the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was recalled in, uh, during the Korean War. So I grew up with these stories and his friends. Um, and then, of course, my life coincided with some, some major events so that when I was uh, 12 years old um, and 13 years old, we had the, the building of the Berlin Wall, the Cuban Missile Crisis, huge events in, in the Cold War. And it was so morally clear who the good guys were and who the bad guys were in those days. So that's kind of an early background. When I was in high school, my dad brought home a Zenith transoceanic shortwave radio. And um, it was on the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And so I tuned into Radio Moscow the, the Cultural Revolution was going on in, in China. I tuned into Radio Peking and was just utterly fascinated. And frankly, listening to those broadcasts gave me chills. Um, so then later on, um, went to school. Uh, Berkeley was a, a student of Professor Robert Scalapino, 
who took a special interest in me. And while I was there, he asked me if I'd take a graduate seminar in the Cultural Revolution as an undergrad. What an incredible opportunity. Um, so it looked like uh, things were destined. <laughs> there was an interest from the, the get-go. And of course, my life also coincided maturing and, and um, going through kind of puberty through college during the Vietnam War. Um, and, and obviously that was hugely shaping of, of my interests. So you highlighted Vietnam, Soviet Union, China. Um, a lot of those countries played the key moments in sh the shifting balance of power uh, in Asia. Um, how has that balance of power today changed since when you first started studying the issue? Yeah, well, of course, the balance of power has turned upside down. Uh, at that time, uh, growing up, uh, it was a bipolar world, and the other pole was um, was the Soviet Union. And and up until the very end of the '60s, it was really, in general, perceived to be um, a close alignment between, in, in, in fact, a uh, uh, an ally, an alliance between the Soviet Union and China. And so the communist world was enormous, whether measured geographically or, or by population or by other measures of power. The splitting apart of that uh, alliance uh, with the Sino-Soviet split and then the recognition of that split um, very belatedly, but finally by President Nixon, provided a new strategic picture in which the U.S. had a single peer competitor, the Soviet Union, a tacit alliance with uh, with China, an uneasy tacit alliance, but 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 it was it was working, and so that's a very different picture from today. So today, what we have is again fascinatingly, but turned upside down, a balance of power in which the peer competitor is China, and this is a a peer competitor with far more economic uh, capabilities than the Soviet Union ever had. At the same time, we now have a very close strategic alignment between China and Russia that is of enormous uh, strategic importance. And so, from the U.S. perspective, as they can really divide our attention between Europe and Asia, not unlike uh, we've had to face before, say during World War II, where our attention was divided uh, between Europe and Asia because of Germany in Europe and Japan in Asia. So, it's changed dramatically. But it's interesting, uh, the big three important, most important players are the same. The three most important players are the same. You mentioned China, Russia, um, potential, uh, the, the possibility of the enormity of their cooperation there. Would you say that's the biggest challenge um, facing the United States from the Indo-Pacific? Um, is there something greater than that? What would you identify as the greatest challenge? Well, the it, the comprehensive challenge that's um, posed by the rise of China is kind of the best way to put it. One dimension of that rise is its very uh, smart strategic decision to, uh, to form this alignment with Russia because, as I said, it divides our attention. And the two of them are constantly you know, attacking our democracy, cyber-wise, otherwise, uh, all kinds of intelligence activities. Um, so the two together can do lots of things to dilute our capacity to respond. And um, so that is, but, but it's really China. If you, none of this is without China. China's economy is 10 times the size 
of Russia's. And that's just important to keep in mind. So while, that, while Russia is a challenge, it's primarily a challenge because of that alignment with China. So then when we think about the enormity of the challenge from China, how is the Trump administration's free and Indo-Pacific strategy uh, ready to respond to that challenge? You know, it's more than that. I, I'd rather kind of broaden the strategy, which is emerging uh, and is, is actually fairly clear. There was a great picture taken at the recent G20, and across from Xi and Xi Jinping and, and his uh, co-leaders there, across from him were not only uh, President Trump, but you had um, Secretary of State Pompeo, National Security Advisor Bolton, you had um, trade, industry, White House, kind of czar, uh, Peter Navarro. Um, behind the scenes uh, was, um, was Matt Pottinger of the NSC. You had uh, Mnuchin, and you had uh, Lighthizer, our USTR. So what you had there for ostensibly a financial, economic, trade negotiation our, firm, our full national security and, and uh, economic policy teams. So what you're seeing, the reason I mention this, is that you're seeing a much more integrated, comprehensive strategy than we have had toward China in memory. Very self-conscious, simultaneously dealing with the trade issues, with IP theft, with the subsidies, the whole industrial policy challenge, uh, the intelligence attacks and cyber attacks, the challenges to the South China Sea and other parts of the Western Pacific, um, the whole range of issues in which the rise of China challenges uh, the United States and other democracies. Given the range of challenges you just highlighted, it seems an integrated strategy is necessary to be able to respond to those challenges. Then within the strategy, what would you say are the fundamentals that the United States has to get right mm -hmm. for its national security? You know, we, you hear the term, um, there are structural issues between the United States and China, and, and my response to that is, <laughs> yes, there, that's an understatement, that's a euphemism for um, the structures associated on the China side with dictatorship, um, a Leninist party structure, all the sets of values that go along with, with Chinese dictatorship and, and uh, its kind of suzerain sense of how international relations ought to extend from China. So those are, you might say, structural. Uh, certainly, certainly are. Together with the, the, the comprehensive industrial policy is, uh, of course, the ostensible immediate target of the tariffs and so on. But the gulf between what China is, as I've just described it, and what America and the, and the other democracies are, uh, just there's no overlap in values. Hopefully there's one in stability. Hopefully there's one in peace. But we're certainly not going to see, in my view, any kind of reform short of revolution in China, any kind of structural accommodation that will suffice. As a consequence, I think we're going to see what I call complex disengagement um, with China, which means not complete, given the enormous uh, interdependence, uh, complexity, supply chains, all these complex economic relationships, other issues in which the countries have uh, uh, interests that overlap and so on. You're going to see 
in my view, complex disengagement, which means selective disengagement, so we don't feel we're as vulnerable to their predatory industrial policies and other policies. At the same time, my hunch is we'll see a greater complex engagement with the democracies. So in spite of the administration's rejection of TPP and multilateralism per se, I think that's the way we're headed. Uh, and I think that's the way the administration is really going. Not using that terminology, but essentially regathering the coalition, both strategically, such as NATO, other key countries in Asia, strategic collaboration, alliances, friendships, so on. Uh, and on the economic side, my hunch is that once the, some of the noise uh, dies down from this acrimony over tariffs and, and trade uh, negotiations, I think we'll see an enlargement of um, and, and greater integration of the democracies economically to spur their growth to better keep up and perhaps even exceed China's. Using the euphemism, you know, structural issues, it seems that it would behoove China to um, align itself with uh, similarly uh, situated structures, for instance, Russia. Uh, you mentioned at the outset um, some of the areas of cooperation uh, between the two. What do you see as the key challenges of them cooperating together for the sure. United States? Sure. Well, number one, as I said, is um, what they get strategically, the greatest single benefit they get is to divide our strategic attention. We cashed in the peace dividend in the 1990s by giving up our capacity, we had a 2.1 war capacity. We could fight two major wars simultaneously, one in Asia, one in Europe, plus another. That's how robust um, a national security apparatus and defense apparatus we had. We gave it up. We can fight one war, not two. So by dividing our strategic attention, they know we're stretched thin. We cannot fight simultaneous wars in Asia and Europe and expect to win. So that's the number one benefit they get from their alignment. They are also threatened by democracies. They are authoritarians. So the degree to which they can combine and separately attack the basis for our democracy, our election processes, uh, our relations with our other uh, democracies, democracies around us, are all under attack 24 hours a day. Um, it's an enormous cyber intelligence operation that is remarkable. It extends from pure national security and political arenas into the economic arenas. Um, in the next, uh, this 90-day period in which the administration and China are supposed to work out their so-called structural uh, problems, I think what we're going to have to see, and I'm hoping it really is successful, a sober, calm education of the American public and of the other democracies, uh, publics, so that they appreciate that we're in a long-term, very difficult, call it a, I don't know if it's a cold war, um, it is certainly almost uh, a quiet war, given the fact that it's being waged against us. Uh, one last comment, I'm, I'm very uh, unhappy with the term that, that America started a, a tariff war. Uh, well. We might have got referred to tariffs first, but a, but a uh, some kind of trade war. Well, this trade war has been waged against us for 40 years. We finally decided to respond, and, and we can debate whether or not tariffs are the right way to go. 
but it's been a one-sided trade war for 40 years. And so this relationship between China and Russia is something that doesn't get as much attention despite the problems that you raised. Um, and you and uh, Robert Sutter from the George Washington University recently wrote this seminal report seeking to fill that gap. So as you were doing um, publishing that report, did you see any opportunities uh, when it comes that the U.S. can leverage when it comes to the Chinese-Russian uh, uh, relationship? Absolutely. It's on the face of it, it's just, it's really bad news <laughs> when you realize why they're combining uh, and, and what they're accomplishing by combining. Uh, just a step back on that project, we had 120 specialists, 50 uh, reports were done, I mean, research studies were conducted. We've had a variety of publications. The most recent you mentioned is the book called Axis of Authoritarians. That's actually an edited volume. Bob and I were contributors, as well as um, uh, Jim Steinberg and some other really leading um, uh, doers and, and thinkers on the topic. But, okay, now, what the heck can be done? While the strategic interests of China and Russia align in many ways, for example, China wants a reliable source of energy. Russia wants to make uh, have reliable uh, uh, markets for its energy production. That's a natural. What really is intriguing from China's side is because of the asymmetry, a combination of the asymmetry between China and Russia, China is so much more powerful. Together with the fact that it's not a vulnerable sea route, it is a land route directly from Russia into China, it's a perfect supplier. They can rely on Russia. If Russia dared to cut off a supply of energy to China, China would move into Siberia. It'd just take it into the Russian, not Siberia, the Russian Far East. It would simply take it. So this is a very reliable source of energy. So that's another interest they share. Now, there are interests they don't share. And we can exploit those interests in my view. But it's going to take a patient and strong policy. So number one, uh, there's an asymmetry that I just mentioned between China and Russia. Russia understands this and knows it will lose. Without some balancing power in the long term, China will take the Far East back at some point and dominate Russia. It's not about to have any kind of condition of insecurity or vulnerability to Russia anywhere in Central Asia, Russian Far East, anywhere in the world, because China's going to be so dominant. Therefore, Russia really has a long-term interest with somebody out there, and the only somebody out there who could ever help them is the United States. Number two, Russia is vulnerable to us. Russia knows that areas like Central Asia and so on are at play, and Russia simultaneously is vulnerable to us. If we had a strong position, took a stronger position in Ukraine and Europe, bolstered our forces to absolutely convince Russia that under any circumstances it would be suicide to do anything, to effectively deter Russia, which we cannot do now. Western Europe's weak, and our forces are divided and weak. If we could change that situation, that strategic balance on the ground in Europe, and toughen up on, on Ukraine, and simply give Putin the following plan. 
we're going to welcome you to the, the family of nations again, and you're going to not ally with China, and here's why you're not going to do it. We're going to be able to defeat you in Europe, ending any plans you had of, of reestablishing your empire. And then we're going to offer, once you pull back, eliminate your intermediate-range uh, nuclear missiles, and you, you understand that new balance of power, then we're going to help you out. Once you pull your, again, you reduce the threat and show us that that alignment with China is limited, then you can do, we can do things with you economically and with Japan, for instance, the pipeline to diversify your, your dependencies on, on markets for energy. We're going to you know, get that pipeline going to Japan. We can have a comprehensive strategic, in other words, agreement so we don't have to worry about you in Europe. Rich, you've written elsewhere where you strongly advocate for a policy of double deterrence against both North Korea and China. You share a similar concern with that of Nick Eberstadt from AEI, who was previously on our podcast, that one of North Korea's chief aims is to defeat the South. Are there any ways to exploit this challenging dual threat? Well, there are two things going on here um, that, that we have to, well, three things that we have to understand that are really important. Um, the first is, and it's never discussed, and, and, and through all our research, we know is the case that the number one threat to North Korea is not the South. The South has not, a, has not had the capacity to invade North Korea, nor any of the will. And it's not the United States. We don't have the capacity or will to go into North Korea. We have never posed an invasion uh, threat to North Korea since the Korean War. And, and leader after leader of North Korea has tested that with impunity, sinking South Korean ships, axing our people and, you know, our soldiers in the DMZ, shelling things, firing off missiles, blowing up nuclear weapons, and all we do is maybe rattle a saber but mount no effort that under any circumstances would really pose a threat to the country. So China's the threat. The Koreans have a historic animosity and difficult history with China. China's the threat to them. On the other hand, North Korea shares an interest in avoiding democratization. We have two ruthless dictatorships in China and in, and in North Korea. They share that interest in staving off the influence of South Korea and other democracies. And China basically has given an ultimatum to North, I am sure, that if the North goes too far out of a path, striking out on its own, striking, say, an, a totally independent relationship with the United States, it will invade and replace the North Korean regime. And there's nothing the United States could do about it. China could choose at any time that it wanted and felt that it was safe to do so to go into North Korea with one caveat. And that caveat is that North Korea has developed a nuclear weapon that can be fired off 360 degrees. That nuclear weapon capability in the North is a deterrent not just to the South, not just to Japan, which of course poses zero threat to North Korea, other than the fact that it's a democracy. 
Japan has no capacity to invade. Uh, and the North knows this. So th those weapons are really, in the end, a deterrent to China. So what is this now? I've painted kind of the strategic picture. What does this mean? This means that we can have some sort of strategic agreement, quiet understanding with the North, in my view, in which it will have to retain its nuclear, it will not give up its nuclear weapons, by the way, because of its, it sees enemies 360 degrees, it'll never give up its nuclear weapons. It is crazy to ever give up its nuclear weapons. It is irrational, beyond belief, to ever <laughs> give up its nuclear weapons. Therefore, not that I'm, you know, I, I'm not saying this is what I would favor. I'd love to have, you know, all nuclear weapons gone. I'm just being, you know, a tough analyst here because it would never give up, in the end, all of its nuclear weapons. Maybe it's intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles that, that threaten the United States, but never the kinds of missiles that would deter its immediate neighbors, especially China. Therefore, we have to live with those, in my view. We can decrease maybe the number. We can maybe work with North Korea, kind of wink at them and say, we get it. We're going to have to say all these things that, you know, oh gosh, we hate nuclear weapons and all this, but we may have to wink at them and say, you know what, we can actually do business with you economically if you pull your conventional forces far enough back from the DMZ so that you are not an imminent threat to invade. And if that's the case, and that is maintained, so we don't have the threat of imminent war on the peninsula, uh, we can do business with you and, and diversify your economic lifelines, which are now 90% of North Korean trade is with China. That is unbelievable. A nation that hates to be dependent, a nation that is, that is committed to independence vehemently, can't be 90% dependent on another economy for its trade. So, so we offer diversifying that. But, but in my view, first has to come uh, two things, the conventional retreat and diminution of the threat, get those howitzers, get those missiles, uh, conventional, back off the border, way off the DMZ, so no surprise attack could take place. And then let's talk about reduction of nuclear weapons and especially intercontinental ballistic missiles. Japan won't be particularly happy about this, but frankly, I see no realistic hope of total denuclearization on the peninsula. Seems like a creative strategic approach that isn't being discussed. Well, it might be discussed. Mm -hmm. It's one of those you really couldn't discuss it, right? It can't be, it cannot be what's on the table for the public to see. Because if that's what's on the table, China may, come, may move in. I mean, China would be tempted. And it knows this acutely, by the way. The Chinese and Koreans uh, are sufficiently suspicious of each other that these are the first things they think about. They just don't talk about them. So you mentioned that China's concerned that North Korea may strike out on its own. There's another Korea that could strike out on its own, and some are concerned these days that the Moon administration in South Korea uh, is moving too fast, maybe uh, in a different direction uh, than the Trump administration is. Um, how do you see these, deve these developments affecting the U.S. ROK relationship? History is replete with examples of strategic mistakes. And, and in my view, the South Koreans need to be very, very careful here. They cannot, in my view, 
bet their future on a cozy relationship with China. China covets the entire Western Pacific and all its peripheries in suzerain terms. And there is no way in the long term where South Korea, not to have a guarantor, that is the United States, there's no way China's going to put up with a democracy that close to its border. So South Korea has to be really careful. It is becoming as vulnerable, in my view, almost, not quite, as Taiwan, where the pressure is mounting and mounting, mounting with the growth of Chinese power. And so, so South Korea has to make really careful strategic decisions and I'm going to trust that, that uh, rational thinking will prevail no matter what administration um, has power in the South, which party, uh, and that they will understand that their interests, if they really want to keep and sustain freedom, democracy, open seas, open skies, um, a liberal world order, at least for them, that they're in, they better place their bets with the United States, Japan, and others, and um, and understand that not everything's going to be perfect on the peninsula, but they can reach a safer position if they understand what I've just uh, explained here a few minutes ago. So you identify some of the risks that one of our key allies could face um, if we don't work in close partnership. Let's zoom out a little bit. So, what are some of the other opportunities that you see for the United States to work with our allies and our partners uh, to advance either the Indo-Pacific strategy or, more broadly, U.S. national interests? Sure. Well, there's a and Asian interests, right. I mean, there are a whole range of diplomat. You use all the tools, right, uh, that are available to you: diplomatic, economic, and military. Um, and on the uh, let's go to the economic, for instance. In my view, we're we're crazy if we don't reconstitute a higher level version of TPP. That's going to happen. And I see this administration actually doing it. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic about this. It makes too much sense. We need to bolster growth in the West, but, but at the same time make sure that America ends up as strong or stronger than ever. And, and there are two reasons. I mean, there's the populist reason that we hear about every day and, and people complain about, oh my gosh, it's just, you know, we're just being populist. And No, there's another more important reason. The world needs a leader and the free world in particular needs a leader. There is no leader without a dominant, powerful United States. Without a dominant, powerful United States, the world's going to lose to China. And so somebody's got to be so powerful that others will, are willing to stick it out where they'll believe in it. America is so powerful and so credible and engaged that it will hang in there in Europe and in Asia. And in spite of all the, the uh, populist rhetoric coming out of the administration and so on, I don't see, in fact, when you look under the surface and look at the actual policies, uh, that they're doing anything but uh, understanding the importance of our power and the importance of all our allies and friends. There's, there is underway now. It has been for a while, and it'll get harder and, and even more so in the future, a competition between the United States and China for the peripheries between them. Ex you know, exactly analogous to the Cold War, or you go back to any period in history, uh, going back to the, Pelop you know, the, the world and on the Peloponnese prior to the war. Um, 
there was this gray area in between and Megara, for example, and what triggered the Peloponnesian War between the Athenians and Spartans was Megara. And, and in fact, an economic sanction by Athens against Megara. This is, this is international relations going back to the first history, Thucydides' first history. And IR scholars know this. It has happened throughout history. This is no different in concept. The details are different. The amount of economic interdependence is greater than sometimes before. Although just prior to World War I, Europe was just as integrated economically, arguably. So every era has its own individual circumstances. But if you step back as an analyst, as a scholar of, of international relations, there is so much history to learn from and apply here. It seems like we can't get away from China when we think about the Indo-Pacific next year. So 2019 will be the sixth year of China's Belt and Road Initiative, its major land and maritime um, foreign economic initiative. What do you think the Belt and Road Initiative looks like in 2019? How are countries responding to it now that it's in its sixth year? You know, the, China still has a lot of uh, foreign exchange um, to so on balance, it's got it's got money to spend. Uh, it's very ambitious, but um, you already see uh, the world waking up uh, to the strategic dimensions of Belt and Road. It's not this isn't China going to Africa uh, and even to Alaska. By the way, it's not often <laughs> mentioned, but China has a proposal to build a gas pipeline in Alaska. The political ramifications. Uh, together with the economic ones, tell you everything about their integrated economic, military, political strategy, which is a preeminence. Uh, the, the China dream is no secret. It's the reestablishment of Chinese preeminence in the world, but even on a scale unprecedentedly, really. On an unprecedented scale that goes, they were a regional power and the most powerful country in the world, but they really didn't look globally. Now they're looking globally, and that's the China dream. And make no bones about it. The Belt and Road is, I think, a very uh, interesting and, and strategic effort to bring more of the world under its economic and political and, and in the end, military influence that will also further enrich and, and enhance the power of China. So where do I see it? I th see this attenuating a little bit. You might see uh, areas that uh, of, of some failure in areas of further focus. You might see some areas where they're successful, but uh, the world is waking up to this stuff, and poorer countries are going to want its money, and in the end may give China bases, for example. This is part of the strategic competition that's going to take place. I think you'll see, in fact, in two, 2019, more militarization. Of, of kind of belt and road so-called pa partners where port rights become, you know, naval visiting rights and or, or uh, naval stations. I think you'll see uh, further advancement in the range at wit in which uh, Chinese, uh, the Chinese Air Force can reach through refueling. We've seen circumnavigation uh, by air now of Taiwan we may see that in the next year or two of the Japan archipelago, much as the, the Russians, just like they did in the Soviet days, now mount military missions that circumnavigate the Japanese archipelago. Japan has to, to scramble its air force to intercept Russian and Chinese 
dangerous, threatening incursions flying toward Japanese airspace every day, on average more than once a day. So I think you'll see more of that stuff because China has really not seen anybody mount a response to it. They see its success in intimidating Japan um, through it was never responded to. During the Cold War, we had a few clashes up there in the air, but for the most part, those Soviet maneuvers kept up. And, and so anyway, I can see a further mili- a bit of more militarization, and I see the propensity for uh, problems in the South China Sea. When I mean problems, I mean clashes in the South China Sea, further north around the Senkakus or somewhere around Taiwan, uh, these other places between American or other democratic uh, nations' forces and China, Chinese. Um, I see that's a da- very dangerous thing, and I, I'm hoping that we can have, through a strong policy, uh, an understanding with China that they shouldn't take the risk. So I'm mindful of our time, so I want to ask one more substantive question before we go to the lightning round uh, to round out our time here. So in addition to being president at NBR, you're also the executive director of the IP Commission, and you've... Um, spent a great deal of time looking into the problem of the theft of American intellectual property. Um, What are the key challenges for 2019? Where do we go from here? Well, I started off talking about the structural issues between the United States and China, so-called, you know, this is a euphemism again, between the two countries. And the IP theft issue, 80% of the world's theft of IP is conducted by China kinds of indicators that we spent a lot of time measuring this. So approximately 80%. So pretty much the problem is China. It's Russia to some extent. Increasingly, their their cyber capacities are, are incredible. But it's mostly Russia, or mostly China. This simply, though, is an extension of their industrial policy. It's just one element, one tool they use in industrial policy to leapfrog us. Um, and to beat us, to reach the, the Made in China 2025 goals, but overall, you know, economic and strategic preeminence. So when we look at the question of IP theft, we have to see it comprehensively. So we're not just fighting IP theft, but we've got the problem of predatory policies such as massive subsidies of particular industries that then wipe out the world's, world's other producers of these things. And once they're wiped out, then they, then they prevail. We've seen it in industry after industry. So subsidies, and subsidies come in all kinds of fashion. Subsidized land, subsidized loans, uh, just general subsidies to an industry to get it going. So protecting their home market and nurturing a home industry that way. Tremendous uh, protection in their home market. No international company in any kind of industry we would think is important has a, has a fair chance in China. They might make some sales, but they're not going to win in the home market in China. That's a key, you know, that giant market for them is the key to lure in technology, learn from, get some competition from the foreigners, and then beat the foreigners. And it's very clear. They may say these things. They talk about their, their national champion companies and so on. They're not secret about them. We just don't usually like to acknowledge them. That's fantastic. Um, that's an incredibly wide-ranging discussion that we've just had. Do you have time for two lightning round questions? Well, it depends what they are. <laughs> I'll let you hear them first, and you can decide what you want to answer. So number one, so we've got a uh, – NBR has a wide – readership um, ranging from CEOs all the way down to students or prospective students is now a good time to study IR. Oh my gosh, we need the 
brightest minds in the world to do everything. We need the brightest minds uh, in America, the world, come on over, you know, join us. <laughs> we need the brightest minds to work in, uh, in our industry, in our science, in our, in our understanding of the world, in area studies of China, Russia, all these other places where, where just as in the Cold War, we had to learn about places like Vietnam because it, came, uh, it became a battlefield between East and West. We had to learn about the world better than, you know, we think we know a lot. We didn't know a lot more and keep up with it. There is no element in American life today in which we shouldn't be better better educating our kids. As I said, more, uh, more education in the areas of science, technology, math, engineering, we know all that. We have to compete better in those things, way better. Uh, there's not, so in IR, of course, we need the, some of the best minds to focus on how best, learning from history, learning from the situation now, how best to navigate this terribly difficult period ahead. We can't afford big war, but we know that we know you don't avoid big war by ignoring the, the global circumstances, by putting your head in the sand. We tried that in the 30s. Second question. If there's one book that you would recommend on geopolitics, you have to pick one. What would that be and why? Well, let me just mention some authors, starting with Thucydides, but it's so hard, hard to read. You know, it's, it's, it's fundamental. The recent book, The Thucydides Trap, is, is just simply the latest a couple thousand years of commentary about Thucydides, <laughs> so you, you can go to the source. By but Graham Allison. By Graham Allison, right, right. I, I wouldn't suggest that book in particular. I think there are, in fact, I wouldn't. I think there are more general books that cover that issue in really uh, universal ways. And so all the great texts uh, on international affairs, and I would, I would include on war. I would include, uh, I mean, Clausewitz, you go to Sun Tzu. I mean, really important to understand uh, long-term strategic thinking on the Chinese side. I think you have to, uh, whether it's Hans Morgenthau and later on, uh, or earlier than that actually, E.H. Uh, e. Carr, more recently in the last uh, 20 years, I would read people like Aaron Friedberg, those who really get a sense of how power is accumulated and utilized. Another one is Bob Gilpin, Robert Gilpin. I should have named him right off the bat. I think he's the tw uh, 20th century's greatest uh, international relations theorist who spoke also in terms people can understand. This is not a guy filled with jargon and uh, just a, a brilliant teacher and writer and commentator on international political economy, on war, all the, all the major topics of international affairs. So I'd pick up any book by, uh, by Bob Gilpin. So there are a few to get you started. So on the note of long-term strategic thinking, Rich, uh, you've shared an incredible uh, amount of insight and depth here. I always feel better educated after a conversation with you. So thank you so much for your time. Totally confusing to everybody, I'm sure. <laughs>